This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Very good afternoon to you. Five past twelve. Now, shortly you'll hear from a, a WA avocado grower and the industry here not happy with an Australian importer's decision to bring in three consignments of avocados from Chile. You'll find out why shortly. And have you ever travelled across the country out of Western Australia heading east along the Nullarbor? Well, today you will, after half past 12 today, you'll head out across the Nullarbor to a spot just before the South Australian border, probably a, a few hundred kilometres before you reach that SA border, to Madura Plains Station. It's a 730,000 hectare merino sheep operation and it is right in the middle of one of its worst droughts. You'll head there after the news headlines and a wrap of the weather conditions from the Bureau of Meteorology. First up, though, the latest Abares crop report has forecast an average to above average winter crop of 47.9 million tonnes of grain from farms right across the country. Here in Western Australia, farmers are expected to produce 15.7 million tonnes of grain, Wheat making up the bulk of that at just under 9 million tonnes, while barley is expected to be just under 4 million tonnes and canola coming in at 1.45 million. Now, these figures would have been a lot lower if not for good rains across much of the growing region in August. But Abares does note that farmers will need some September rain just to finish things off nicely. So how are things looking at your place? Are you on track for average, above average, or perhaps below average this time round? Text through 0448922604 and let us know what is happening at your place. Just drilling into those Abares figures and the data a little bit more, wheat at harvest is expected to average 1.87 tonnes per hectare across Western Australia. That's up 45% on last year. And the area planted to wheat is understood to be around 4.8 million hectares. Now, Gary Butcher farms at Pithara, which is near Dalwollinu in the wheat belt. He says things are looking quite promising, but the next few weeks will really determine the success of the season. Here at Far, we've had 226, no, 236 mil of rain, sorry. Uh, we had 50 mil in August, which was great, and uh, 90 mil during the summer. So we haven't had an overly wet year. Um, we're probably on the going for an average crop with a potential upside, I think, if we get a kind rain and kind heat in September. Yeah, so the next couple of weeks will determine whether you go average to above average. Yeah, we had three mil uh, yesterday, which was a bit unexpected, and it's not a lot of rain, but it's not a hot day either. So, uh, yeah, happy with that. Now, Gary, you said you're looking at roughly average or hopefully a little more, but what is average at Pathara? Uh, average is 1.8 for, for uh, wheat. So, um, yeah, the canola's come 
Yeah, it, it's really boosted to what it was. Had a, a poor germination and uh, some wind blow in some of the sandier areas, but uh, yeah, it's looking pretty good. But it, it needs it needs rain. It needs another rain to really make us smile. We're mm. smiling all right, but uh, yeah, more rain would be great. Yeah, just increase it a little more. Yeah. Maybe a green. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. What's the feel in the area given where things are at in comparison to this time last year? Well, yeah, pretty pretty happy. We, the Daly Shire put on a um, a kids' fun day at the showgrounds because our local show wasn't held yesterday, and there's plenty of people there. Kids had a wonderful time, so uh, pretty good feelings around. I think staff shortages are going to be a problem for some people for harvest with the backpacker sort of not uh, travelling through. But, yeah, somehow we'll get through it. Bazaar farmer Gary Butcher with Joe Prendergast. And a good thing to read in the Abares Crop Report is the prospect of New South Wales having one of its best harvests. And that's, of course, after a, a couple of shockers in a row. How is it looking at your place? What do you need to finish off your season? Text through 0448 04 You're part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. An Australian importer has confirmed it's purchased 20 trays of avocados from Chile but says they're samples and it's highly unlikely they'll hit Australian supermarket shelves. Avocados Australia says this is the first time since the free trade agreement with Chile was struck that any avocados have been imported, and it's only happening now due to a supply shortage from Western Australia. The Department of Agriculture has confirmed three consignments arrived in Australia last month. Anthony Allen is the CEO of the Avolution, the Brisbane markets company responsible for the imports. He says he's just making sure he has enough supply to maintain the company's export market share during the shortfall. We got some samples out of Chile of some fruit. Yes, that's correct. It was shipped into Australia. A number of other businesses have got samples at the same time. What's the fruit like? Has has are you happy with it? Are you happy with the quality? It's okay. I mean, it's it's good. It's it's come in in reasonable condition, but it, it's only a, a very small order. It's very hard to tell what quality of fruit is when you you only got a small amount of fruit. But given the situation here in Australia, will you be ordering more? Yes. Well, that that's yet to be seen. The tricky part with the Chilean fruit is that really we're looking to supply our Asian customers with Chilean fruit and food service potentially within Australia. So for us, it's more about the export opportunities of selling, sending Chilean fruit to Asia, Singapore, Kuala Lumpur, Hong Kong. I see. So they mightn't hit supermarkets here in Australia. It may be that they're on scent to other countries. Correct. Supermarkets are very unlikely to have Chilean fruit. Definitely unlikely to happen. It's more to do with Export markets, the Chilean fruit's all pretty small, so it meets the export market requirements. And the Western Australian fruit this year is all big because they're on a short short crop year, so they've got a reduction of about a third of their crop compared to last year. So their fruit's going to be all big, and we can't keep our customers in Australian fruit, although we'd love to be able to do that. At the moment, there won't be Australian fruit to supply them. So to ensure Mexico doesn't take our customers off us during the summer, we need to find a solution. So we thought, well, maybe Chile is a good solution for 
those customers in the interim. So in terms of what's on Australian shelves at the moment, is it 100% Australian fruit or is there some New Zealand fruit in there at this point? Oh, there's definitely New Zealand fruit in there at this point and Western Australian marketers are part of those people that are actually putting it into the into the supermarkets at the moment. So those Western Australian growers that have probably, and marketers that are, have built up this, let's say, um, overreaction, are those ones actually supplying New Zealand fruit into the supermarkets at this point in time. So is that, that's what you're calling it? it? You think it is an overreaction? Oh, I think it is because in, in the end, it's only going to be a very small amount of fruit. It's not going to replace the three million trays that are missing out of the crop from last year. So last year, Western Australia was about nine million trays. This year, they're only going to have about six. So it's going to be quite a difficult year. It already is. Prices are at a historical high prices. And for consumers, that's a, it's a big, big price to pay for their smashed avocados. Anthony Allen, he's from the Avolution, based at the Brisbane Markets and talking to Ali Felton-Taylor. 14 past 12, back here in Western Australia to get the local perspective on these avocado imports from Chile. Vince Grazotis grows avocados at Manjimup, about three hours south of Perth, and he also has a packing shed there. He says the WA industry's response is no overreaction. This importation permit is going to work against Western Australian growers in the window in which we produce avocados. And uh, a lot of the uh, this decision has been made on the basis, I guess, uh, the fact that, you know, we are Western Australian and uh, we're on the other side of the country. A large percentage of the avocado directors are uh, in the eastern states. So, so we, we don't have a lot of say in a lot of areas. And this is basically, we can we can see this in the, in the way that Avocados Australia treats the Western Australian industry. Do you think that there, I mean, there's questions around the labelling requirements uh, and the fact that it might be difficult for Australian consumers to determine the difference between Australian avocados and imported product? Well, absolutely. We There is a photo that is now circulating where we, we've taken one of a, of a Chilean fruit and there's absolutely no stickers on it. So we don't know what's there to stop growers or stop the retailers mixing in with, with Western Australian fruit. Consumers have to be aware that this fruit is in excess of four weeks old because of the, the fact that it is being shipped over by, by uh, ship, in most cases, of particularly large volumes. And as I said, we have no way of, of identifying it. And this could be highly detrimental to the West Australian industry, particularly if they start mixing inferior products. Now, the Avolution, which is the company behind the importation of these Chilean avocados, says that it's unlikely that they're going to reach Australian supermarket shelves, that it's all about maintaining export supply. Is that a premise that you accept? No, well, why would they want to go through a third party coming through Australia to go into Asia? It just doesn't make commercial sense. The expense, um, you yeah. mean? Exactly right. It does not make commercial sense. This is being done by the Evolution Group purely for their own commercial benefit by marketing this produce in Australia. Majumup avocado grower and packing shed owner Vince Grazotis responding to news that Chilean avocados have hit Australian shores. And he was speaking there with Jess Hayes.
17 past 12, news headlines and across to the Bureau of Meteorology around about half past 12 for you today. First, though, the head of the Kimberley Land Council says the draft Aboriginal Heritage Protection Bill does not offer enough control to Indigenous communities negotiating with mining companies over heritage decisions. The bill was released by the state government last week and if it's passed into law, it's going to replace the existing Aboriginal Heritage Act, which has been heavily criticised for allowing Rio Tinto to destroy sacred sides at Dukin Gorge in the Pilbara. Nolan Hunter is the CEO of the Kimberley Land Council. He is not convinced the new proposed legislation will prevent another Dukin Gorge-type disaster from happening in the future. No, I'm not confident at all. And the legislation does not allow for that. It allows for consultation. And that's a complex kind of issue, particularly around governance capability that I mentioned and the capacity. The process will be that there is a uh, there's a time limit on it as well and, and like a right to negotiate um, under future acts. But if decisions aren't made or, or a conclusion is entered into, then will it be like there's still then a de- decision that is deferred to the minister? So you're saying the same could still yeah. happen because ultimately it's going to be a, a future minister's yeah. decision whether or not uh, heritage is protected or not? Yeah. So so if there's a negotiation, for example, and they don't agree, um, all that will happen is what happens now, and that is that the, the industry goes to um, the government to then override it or, or make a decision to grant it. That's my understanding of it at the moment. My, my question is that there is a whole legacy of Indigenous people beholden to the laws of Australia. And I think there has to be some point where there has to be real regard to taking seriously the recognition of Aboriginal people, their rights and their culture and their heritage and their native title. This is just what a token gesture that there is no real intent, if, if I read this correctly, but um, taking seriously the concerns that Aboriginal people have about the protection of their country and their heritage and, uh, you know, what's important. And is that your assessment of what you've seen so far of this draft bill, that it is a, a, a token effort? I don't want to beat the state up too much about this. There has to be some mechanism that allows for um, industry to do, uh, you know, its activities. I don't think traditional owners are saying they don't want to have the ability to stop all mining. That's not what's being said. But there has to be uh, a give and take and a balance about the way this occurs. And if the balance is about saying that we'll produce a law that Ashley says, and you look at the percentage of the objections that were lodged that were ever upheld, and, and, and you know I've already mentioned that, then this is not the right balance. The common sense, but also the evidence, would point to the fact that everything is now in favour of industry and uh, or proponents having their rights recognised over the rights of native title and Aboriginal people. CEO of the Kimberley Land Council, Nolan Hunter, with Ben Collins. 20 past 12, the Minister for Aboriginal Affairs, Ben Wyatt, says the way the legislation is designed is for the vast majority of agreements to be reached between traditional owners and proponents. And the role of the minister is limited to circumstances where agreements cannot be reached or mediated. The government is looking for feedback on the proposed bill and submissions close next month.
21 past 12. Greg McIntyre is a barrister specialising in native title law. He says the new Heritage Protection Bill is a significantly better piece of legislation than what WA has at the moment, with a lot more checks and balances. What this bill does is improve the say which custodians uh, and knowledge holders have in informing the government about these things, uh, but it doesn't give them a veto or transfer power to them to make the final decisions. Would it be fair to say, though, that although technically it would still be possible for a Jukun Gorge-type destruction to happen, it's less likely or perhaps even unlikely that it would happen under the draft bill? I think it's less likely under the draft bill. I mean, the bill does create a larger number of procedures and better procedures so that there are new steps which can be taken to stop things like that happening. Uh, For instance, there are provisions in this bill which allow the minister to, to make stop activity orders and there are provisions which allow for the Cultural Heritage Council to take into account changes in circumstances which have have occurred since a consent might have been given. So some of those things could help in a similar Juk and Gorge situation. There are also better processes for developing management plans which have much more involvement of Aboriginal custodians. So overall, how would you assess the efforts of this government to improve Aboriginal cultural heritage protection in Western Australia? This is a significantly better piece of legislation than we have at the moment. Uh, It has a lot more processes which do have a lot more involvement of Aboriginal people. I I would prefer it to be the case that the independent arbitration was made by an independent legal body rather than than the government who, as I say, have a have a royalty uh, and general economic interest in mining and activities which might affect cultural heritage. A specialist in native title law, barrister Greg McIntyre with Ben Collins. 23 past 12. A major Australian meat processor says Australian workers need to be weaned off the job seeker scheme as it's much more appealing to some people than paid employment. John Langbridge is the Manager of Corporate and Industry Affairs with the Eastern States-based meat processor Tees Group. He says the scheme is putting off potential workers from applying for jobs in the meat processing sector. What we've been finding is that I suppose our number of job applications is at its sort of lowest level ever historically. We normally get a fair few more applications than we're currently seeing. So we think the current circumstances are basically putting people off applying. So the fact that there are more generous arrangements currently at the moment would be dissuading people from applying to work in a meat processing facility? Well, that's one reason. But the other thing is obviously there was a a bit of a problem in Victoria with meat processing plants and COVID-19 mm. that really haven't been replicated anywhere else in Australia at this at this point. So I think both those things are essentially working together to put people off applying. But suffice to say, we've, we've got plenty of jobs. We've got about 40 current vacancies at Wagga at various skill levels. So we're really keen to talk to people. So how many people do you employ overall? At that plant itself, we employ about 880 people overall, but we've got about 4,500 people employed 
around Australia, you know, mainly in regional and rural centres. And what are the job vacancies that are advertised at the moment? Well, the job vacancies range pretty well almost to any skill level, um, but effectively from, you know, basic um, uh, what we would call follow-on labour, there's the people that, you know, cleaners and pick things up basically all the way through to fully skilled butchers, you know, tradesmen. Um, we'll have administrative jobs as well. So we've got plenty of opportunities, but we've essentially got to get people in through the front door first. What would you like to see the government do in relation to the job seeker scheme? I suppose it's a bit difficult. They've done very well keeping the economy basically primed as much as they have. But at some point, it's, it's going to be sort of, you know, weaning people off one system and basically getting the economy back into a more normal footing. And I suppose that's the, the, the thing we're pretty keen to see government do is sort of manage the transition from where we are now to basically the economy back up and running. And, and you would have seen there's plenty of other ag sectors that are desperately seeking workers at the moment. Mm. So there's quite a lot of opportunities there, but it's just that people seem a little bit maybe, for whatever reason, too comfortable with the current circumstances to be chasing those jobs down. But you have also yourself just mentioned that the situation in Victoria may be dissuading people from applying for a job at a meat processing facility. They may have concerns about their health. Yep, yep. Look, look that's correct. Um, but we've made some very significant changes basically since early March. Um, we screen all our workers on a daily basis. We basically... And the employment conditions are pretty reasonable. We do actually... You know, there is availability to various forms of leave if people are feeling sick, and we've been encouraging workers, if they are feeling at all ill, to visit the doctor, get tested. And our workers are doing that. So the relationship between our current workforce and us is... is it probably is its best level ever as well, but... And, and that's because we need a very healthy workforce to run a, a, an efficient business. Mm. So it's in our interest to keep them healthy. So we've been putting in place social distancing in all the sort of ancillary areas and our amenities. We've got demountable amenities in place, allowing people to keep their distance. Inside the work area where it may not be possible to, to, to maintain that full social distance, we've got personal protective equipment available. So that process has served us very well and we've got... We've essentially got eight factories Australia-wide and this is, we really haven't had any scares at all in the period. So the environment is very safe. It's very clean. We produce food. So it means the level of hygiene is quite high. So we think it's a very safe area to work, but we understand because of what people have been hearing out of Victoria, it makes them nervous, but they're no more at risk here than they would be going down to the local shopping centre. John Langbridge, he's from the Tees Group with Sally Bryant. 27 past 12, an update from the newsroom not too far away. Just before that, though, the Australian Veterinary Association is worried there could be dire animal welfare outcomes unless all states sign up to the National Agricultural Worker Movement Code. As you heard on Friday, five out of eight states and territories backed the code, but WA, Queensland and Tasmania did not sign up. Association President Dr Warwick Vale says there have already been examples of border closures making it difficult or even impossible for vets to do their jobs. We've had situations where there have been emergencies like uh, a cow that's uh, giving birth, so a calving, which is uh, in, in, in difficulty, so a uh, dystocia. 
and uh, you know with a valuable cow or a, a valuable calf and uh, she can't give birth and you know that with the you know across the border and uh, but uh, with a practice uh, in south australia and um, getting across the border in you know, a timely way to attend that birthing um, was difficult um, and uh, jeopardised the welfare of the calf and the welfare of the, of the cow. Um, so it's those type of emergencies where, where there's acute suffering, where there's uh, a real uh, timeline on uh, solving the animal's health problem that uh, these border closures uh, are creating for us. And in some circumstances, you know, some minutes or rather than hours sort of delay are still enough to affect the welfare outcome for that individual animal. Um, and the, the, that creates also a financial burden on the farmer who owns the animal. You know, the virus doesn't understand arbitrary borders and neither neither do animals and neither do their health needs. And these are just rural communities. They're not um, state-based communities or regional-based communities. You know, it's specifically, you know, drawn on a map. Australian Veterinary Association President Dr Warwick Vale. This is the Country Hour. It's half past 12 and Jonathan Hopper here with an update from the newsroom. Afternoon, Belinda. Media organisations have slammed China's treatment of two Australian journalists who have fled the country after being questioned by police. Australian officials had to negotiate with their Chinese counterparts in order to get the ABC's Bill Bertels and the AFR's Michael Smith out of the country. They arrived home early today. A deep search of millions of staff systems has failed to detect any sign of extraterrestrial existence. The survey conducted by the CSIRO using the Murchison Wild Wide Field Array in WA's Midwest region scanned a patch of space known to contain at least 10 million stars. Researchers tried to detect radio emissions similar to FM radio frequencies known as techno signatures, which are thought to indicate the presence of intelligent life. And the reigning French Open tennis champion Australia's Ash Barty has announced she will not defend her title at the tournament, which begins later this month. Barty announced on social media that she would miss the, the entire European tennis season, citing concerns over COVID-19 and her preparation. Thanks, Belinda. Thank you for the update, Jonathan. 29 to 1. This is the Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. So good to be catching up with you this afternoon. And I don't want you to go anywhere because shortly you are off on a trip across the Nullarbor just before you get to the sort of WA South Australian border and popping into Madeira Plains Station, a really big merino sheep station. And the conditions aren't great. Drought conditions and have been like that for quite a few years in a row. But you are going to get an insight into just how the station copes with those dry conditions and really gearing up for even drier, tougher conditions into the future. Just before one o'clock, you're off to Mushay for a wrap of the sheep market. And also the head of Australian Wool Innovation says they're doing everything possible to try and adapt to the current very testing circumstances uh, in the wool market prices now, the indicators both on the east and the west under 1,000 cents a kilogram. That's to come between now and the news at one. Right now it is off to the Bureau of Meteorology and Gianni Colangelo is with you this afternoon. Gianni, taking a look firstly in the southwest land division, what can you see this afternoon? 
Yeah, thanks, Belinda. Um, so, currently, um, we're seeing a significant easing of the showers that we've had over the last 24, 48-hour period. Um, the showers have really contracted to mostly coastal parts and struggling to be over uh, over inland parts of the Southwest Land Division. And we really see, really see that uh, easing trend continue for the remaining parts of today uh, and even mostly uh, tomorrow morning. So... The next front that we're expecting, uh, we'll see that approach to Southwest Capes by the late afternoon uh, of Wednesday afternoon. And uh, that'll reach a line approximately uh, Perth to Albany by midnight on Wednesday night. Um, we are expecting that rain <coughs> with the front to move through a, a significant distance inland to reach uh, a good part of the western Great Southern, South Coastal, um, a decent part of the southwest of the wheat belt and central west, but it'll really struggle beyond that. Um, so we're only expecting the odd uh, mill or two maybe reaching the central eastern uh, central wheat belt and uh, eastern parts of the Great Southern and alike. Uh, rainfall totals in the western areas that I mentioned first. Uh, wouldn't be surprised if you if you receive five, ten, even up to twenty, twenty-five mil or so. Um, but like I said, there's a bit of a gradient uh, from the western uh, southwest land division to the central and eastern southwest land division there. And moving into northern and eastern parts of the state, how are conditions looking? Yep, um, uh, similarly mild for uh, today, tomorrow. Um, we do have that front uh, once it moves through the southwest land division. Um, we're likely to see a few showers, a few odd showers just scratch into the southern parts of the Gascoigne the southwestern parts of the goldfields um, and even maybe touch the southwestern eucla. That's uh, almost all the rainfall that they're likely to see. There's a slight chance of some, uh, some rain also coming in for the goldfields and the eucla on, uh, on, uh, sorry, on Friday and Saturday. But uh, that's very, very slight chance uh, in those areas. And other than um, the southern parts of the north and the east of the state, the north remains warm. And warnings this afternoon, Gianni? Uh, we currently have no warnings. And uh, we do have uh, coastal warnings expected for the cold front uh, for areas south of Lancelin to Albany and uh, it'll also include areas uh, east of Esperance for tomorrow. Thank you so much for that. It's 25 to 1. ABC WA, this is the Country Hour. And checking the rainfall figures now, looking back over the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning and checking five mils and over. For northern and eastern forecast districts, there is not a lot to talk about. One over five mils. That was in the Gascoigne, Durawara had eight in the gauge. And then to the southwest, land division in the lower west and southwest, lots of places received sort of between one and four millimetres, but only Walpole Forestry in the southwest got five mils in the gauge. And then in the Great Southern, Wandering had eight. 24 to one. Now, most Western Australian stations on the Nullarbor Plain are struggling with one of their worst droughts. But instead of winding back operations, Madura Plain Station is investing thousands of dollars in an ambitious irrigation project. 
Madura is a 730,000 hectare merino sheep station. Four years ago, it was bought by the Cooper family, the same Cooper family that brews beer in South Australia. Emma Field headed out to the property, which is close to the WA South Australian border. Station manager Tom Austin showed her how they're not only coping with this dry, but gearing up for even tougher conditions in the future. She'll be right. Hopefully Emma's still on the back now. These are some of our merino maidens. They've just turned one year old and as you can see the poor little tykes haven't seen a green stick in their life. This is their, their second year in drought. Um, some poorer, smaller ones amongst them but they're all going as surprisingly well for what they've been living on. They're tough, hardy little sheep but uh, hopefully they'll have rain before Christmas and they'll be up and going. So we'll just pull up and check this trough. We've probably got about 25,000 on at the moment, um, but sheep away, we, we retained old ewes um, leading up into the drought, knowing that there would be a, a national shortage of sheep. And uh, with the rain over east, that worked incredibly well. Last year was the worst year on record for rainfall. It was half the previous bad year. So, uh, so yeah, this year we've had no significant rainfall. So in terms of um, getting through dry periods like this, it's not the first and it's not going to be the last. How is uh, the Cooper business dealing with that? They're very forward thinking. They've, we've got a chain of properties where we can move sheep to. We can wean early, we can retain older ewes. We can, if we have to, um, move sheep on. We've developed our containment pens so we can feed up to 12,000 sheep before trucking. Um, if we've got young sheep or old sheep that need to be boosted up, we can feed them. Um, and that's, that's been a, a massive help. It's a, it's a big investment, but it's, the returns from that have been enormous. So, Tom, we're looking at a whole heap of solar panels here. What's going on? This is the, one of the main pumping stations, so the pump from... 500 feet down out of four boreholes. At the moment there's only two running. Um, and then that comes to a header tank here. All the water's pushed down three separate pipelines, all with 24-hour solar. So the solar <coughs> charges the batteries all day. It'll run all night. Um, they shut off on pressures and flows. So that this pumps continuously. And why did you decide to go for solar? That look, This all looks pretty new. The solar, apart from the initial start-up cost, is... It, is a lot more effective. trying to get diesel out here even just for the generators it's running a b double all the way out here which is a massive job and it's good water is it this is very good water traditionally there was very poor water uh, good supplies very deep uh, this is why all the water comes from these three boy fields they're all really good quality water and then it's pumped everywhere else and how important is it getting the water system right on this property it's everything without it we can't do a thing so that's where the monitoring's so important, where the, the automation's so important and having good people that can maintain it, keep an eye on it. Because without it, the distances which pumping the water, if there's a problem, by the time you get water down those pipelines again, it's a major problem. Overseeing this massive water system is Bess Harrison. Oh, we've probably put in over 800 k's worth of poly pipe. Yeah, we've, we've gone from a hell of a lot of windmills with not very good water, quite salty water to, you know, we've got nine holes pumping nearly fresh water 
Um, we've got all new tanks. We've, we've split the um, split the paddocks up to be smaller sizes. And why does that make a difference? Well, the sheep are grazing a lot lot further out in the paddock because you know they've got a central water point. Because it's good water, they're more happy to spread out and graze parts of the paddocks that just have never been touched. So there's good good feed around, and you know they can get to them. They're happy to come back because they know there's good water to come back to. The difference in like just the the health of the stock really has definitely benefited us and helped throughout those hot summers. You've been working at this property for seven years. Is it um, exciting for you to have some of these new developments coming in? Oh, it's amazing. Like just what we've been able to accomplish the last three and a half years is just phenomenal. And being a part of it is something pretty special. Like no one's doing what we're doing on the scale of of it. With the drought, the sheep are living on saltbush and bluebush, which has got very high salt content. Um, to have good, clean, cool water, it has been the game changer. It's uh, it's got us where we are now. They're also utilising other new technology. They have electronically tagged all their sheep and they remotely monitor all the stock water, which is accessed on a smartphone. Whoever's got access to that, wherever they are in the world, they can do a water run on Madura Plains. They can see what's going on and uh, it's it's a great labour saver to get around this place. The, as you've seen this morning, the roads are terrible, um, it's hard on vehicles and it you know ties up staff. So to be able to know you've got a problem and go straight to it before it comes an issue is just invaluable. And in terms of your plans for the future here, what else do you have in mind for this or what else do the Coopers have in mind for this station? Oh, look, we've all got in mind that it's going to rain and uh, the wheels are going to turn again and uh, we can get our sheep back. That's, that's what we desperately want. And we've got... Um, Programs going ahead with um, moving away from the aerial mustering and going to large-scale drones, um, doing vegetation mapping and species recognition um, with drones. We're working our way towards a high-quality boar goat program, um, which will be in some of the scrubbier and less developed areas. Uh, That's incredibly exciting. And all of that technology is only as good as the data that's put into it and how you manage that data. So at the moment it's, it's being used primarily for paddock of origin but as, we, as these sheep grow up we're, we're running a Stoke-Sterner Master's degree on lamb survival using electronic tagging so we can, we can identify where the problems are. What motivated you to come out to the middle of the Nullarbor in the middle of a drought? <laughs> I think I brought the drought with me from New South Wales but the things that the Coopers are doing here, uh, the plans for Madura, what they've got on the ground already is the direction that the industry needs to go. It's not throwing out all the old tradition, but it's looking how we can improve, how we can use technology, how we can use genetics, and how we can spread risks through different areas. So yeah, I was just really excited and just proving that it can be done on pastoral properties. So with um, uh, climate change predicting that things are gonna get drier and hot summers will get hotter, do you think pastoralism can be viable into the future? Well, I, I certainly hope so. Um, it's changing the way people think. It's changing their, the ideas of, of how they move ahead. And it is sorting out a lot of people who, who aren't reading the signs, who aren't seeing what's happening, who aren't making plans. And uh, it's, it's definitely going to change, change the way we do things. Tom Austin, who manages Madura Plains Station, which is about 1,200 kilometres east of Perth 
and about 1,400 kilometres west of Adelaide. And they're running 25,000 sheep at the moment. But the aim is to increase that number to 70,000 head. And the Cooper family is best known for farming at Jamestown in South Australia. And they have two other farms in South Australia, as well as a station south of Broken Hill. 16 to 1. And it is quite incredible that set up at Majura with the 800 kilometres worth of water piping. But not all Nullarbor stations are able to do that. Tomorrow, you'll hear how Virginia Station is coping with this current drought. Now we're going into year six of pretty dry conditions. Once you get your cattle past the point, and not just the country, what's the condition of the stock? Because they're not worth anything when they get too drought stricken. So, yeah, we've just been cutting our numbers consistently, carting water. You get get a bit despondent, but it doesn't do you any good. So, yeah, it's just a case of chin up. And I've grown up out here, so I know it breaks eventually. It's just a case of hang in until it does. Russell Swan from Virginia Station, which is about 300 kilometres east of Norseman on the Nullarbor Plains. That full interview right here on the Country Hour tomorrow. Quarter to one. My name's Den Carnaby. I work out at the New Mouche Yards. I make a serious meat pie and you're listening to the Country Hour. And you'll be back out at Mouche very shortly. John Testro along with the wrap of today's sheep market. First, though, the head of Australian Wool Innovation says they're doing everything possible to adapt to the current dire situation. Before the pandemic, AWI was already grappling with a reduction in the levy rate and the East Coast drought. Now the wool market is down more than 40% on this time last year. So Stuart McCulloch says even though AWI has around $100 million in the bank, there will definitely be more cuts to wool research and development, marketing and staff numbers. Look, uh, there's no doubt our revenue is going to be significantly reduced as the price goes down, our revenue goes down. Uh, That's just a fact of life that we have to deal with here and we have to move very quickly to reduce projects. I mean, what is is significantly reduced, though, I guess, because there was talk of, you know, reviewing regularly what that hit to the budget bottom line would be. You must be sort of approaching the point where you're looking at what dollar figure that might look at for the next financial year. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, if you go back uh, two years ago, we had $100 million in revenue coming in, or near enough to, 90-something. 90, 90 it's going to be more like, you know, 45, 50 million. So there's obviously a lot of uncertainty right now in the wool industry. What is the message to growers? Look, you know, we stand ready to deploy demand creation dollars and, and human resources in markets that we, we start to see commerce return to. You know, commerce will return and uh, we've just got to be absolutely on the front foot and be able to identify what, what's going to yield for wool growers. And um, we can do that. We, we have good amounts of reserves that we built over the last 10 years with better times and the board is very willing to draw down on those reserves and put more money back in the business. So although our revenue from a year's production is well down, we, we have healthy reserves. What are the reserves? $100 million. And is that this, that's in the strategic reserve fund? Yeah, it's in our reserves. It's in consolidated revenue. 
Now, earlier this year, we reported that uh, at the ABC that AWI was obviously cutting back some funding for services. One of them that was cited was vermin control. How are you, I guess, can you rule out that there might, won't be more cuts to R&D on the ground? No, there'll be definitely more cuts to R&D and there'll be definitely more cuts to marketing. You know, that's a fact of life. That's a fact of we can't, can't halve our revenue and continue to do the same amount of work that we were doing. You know, that's, well, the 60-40 split of marketing to R&D change in light of this sort of unprecedented global situation? Yeah, it's changed in favour of R&D at the moment because our marketing projects are shut down. So, you know, I would think at the moment we are in the order of a 70% R&D company, 30% marketing. And there was talks just back on the budget, there were talks of cutting around 75 people, I think, of the 200 jobs at AWI. Where is that at in that redundancy process? Has that already taken place? And given that the revenue, forecast revenue fall has been more significant than you thought, are you anticipating further job cuts? Yeah, well, look, we, we you know, we I said at the AGM last year, even before COVID, that we would be, you know, a year later at the AGM this year, that we would be 155 people. We're at 158 people right now, and I'm heading towards 125 by the end of this uh, fiscal year. Mm. So more cuts to come. Uh, in terms of other savings measures, is there any talk of reducing board member or senior management payments as a way to sort of add to the bottom line? Yes. What are you What are you looking at? Oh, look, we're looking at every option apart from um, uh, getting apart from reducing our staff numbers. We're looking at every single cost cutting measure here. It doesn't matter what it is. That means leases, operating costs. Every single thing uh, has to be cut, and um, I can assure you the company's doing that. So it could be a percentage of, of board member and senior staff payments? Yes. And is there a figure that's been floated? No. AWI Chief Executive Officer Stuart McCulloch speaking to Jess Hayes about some of the cost-saving measures currently underway. On the country, ABC WA, 10 to 1. South Australia is still in the process of lifting its moratorium on genetically modified crops. But Australian seed producers are saying they're already seeing the benefits. Osman Mewitt is head of the Australian Seed Federation and he says seeds are now being transported direct from the eastern states to western Australia and vice versa. A number of seed companies were granted exemption by the Minister in South Australia to be able to transport GM seed across the state. And so they're able to operate uh, for GM transport at least under those exemptions uh, whilst we wait for the uh, lifting of the moratorium legislation to come into force later this year. What benefits does that bring? Oh, look, it's really operational benefits, Kim. And so uh, previously, GM seed would have to be transported in refrigerated trucks, um, you know, through the NT, for example, and that has implications uh, not only for freight costs, but also seed quality, um, you know, being exposed to potentially high temperatures for a longer period of time. Uh, other options were they'd have to put it on a plane and fly it across the country uh, or uh, put it on a boat and uh, send it send it by sea. So having access to the most direct route, uh, I guess, from the seed production areas to the customers, and it, it goes in both directions as well. A lot of seed production happens in WA for the East Coast. Then it, it just brings real benefits and real efficiencies to the seed industry. And then those efficiencies can then be passed on to, to growers being the end users of the seed. We've gone from having to transport seed through the north of Australia to being able to transport it across the most direct route, which is across South Australia. Australian Seed Federation Chief Executive Osman Mewitt with Tim Jeans, 8 to 1. 
Some farmers in the state's southwest are installing dash cams after close calls with impatient drivers. Jono Trigwell has an agricultural contracting business based at Dardanup and says one of his tractors was nearly involved in a very serious accident. Uh, we started putting them in about three months ago after we had an incident during seeding when a car hit one of our tractors. So we just wanted to take the risk out of us being at fault because we seem to get blamed for a lot of things being a tractor on the road. How often do you have incidents like this? Well, there's always things you see, like people overtaking in double white lines and unsafe and that sort of stuff. This year was the first time we've had actual incidents when the tractors actually hit a car or a car hit the tractor. But, yeah, so you just see stupid stuff all the time, really. It's just being impatient and not giving way and it's a pretty common theme, I guess. Coming into seeding, do you think the dash cams will be important? Well, we're coming into hay and silage now, so we'll be on the road, like there's tractors on the road every day. Um, so it's just to, to cover our backside, really, so that, you know, if there is an incident, we can say, well, this is what's happened. So um, just peace of mind for the drivers and us as the owners for our guys driving them. Do you know any other farmers or contractors that have put dash cams in their tractors? I've certainly had a couple of farmers ask me where I've got them from and things like that and they're thinking about it. I do know of another contractor that um, is running one in one of their tractors as well, mainly for the same thing. They've said they've had just silly things where people just do dumb stuff around tractors. So, Is it just because you're going at slower speeds? Well, the tractors are doing 50 now, so they're, they're not super slow like they used to be, but it's just impatient drivers, I think, really. Um, they're pretty big to see on the road. Um, you know, if you've got a 300 horsepower tractor barreling along at 50 k's an hour, you probably should show it a bit of respect, you know. So they've got flashing lights and, you know, indicators and everything a car's got. They're just a bit slower, but there's just this stigma that tractors are slow and who cares? Were they expensive to put in to your tractors? No, these ones are about $150 each. They just, they're hardwired in, so when you start the tractor, they're on and off, and we can just um, download the info straight to the phone, so... Yeah, we can. They're pretty simple, easy to put in. Oh, I think um, what was it? I bought six of them, so it's nine hundred dollars or something. We paid for dash cams, but pretty cheap piece of mind, I guess. Dardanup farmer and agricultural contractor Jono Trigwell with Ali Honeybone, and you can check out some of the tractor dash cam vision on the ABC's Southwest. Facebook page. In the comments, Matt says, I definitely need dash cams in mind. Some of the incompetent driving we see around the Margaret River wine region is disgraceful. David says, this is one of those 50-50 questions. Yes, drivers of light vehicles need to give heavy vehicles plenty of room and not be obsessed with overtaking. So being prepared to potentially sit behind slow-moving vehicles for as long as it takes. But on the other side of the coin, there are some very irresponsible drivers of farm machinery. And Gianni says, I own several tractors. Where I get upset is when I see them going down the highway with no flashing lights and no warning signs at all. Five to one.
Hello, I'm Sally Sara. Join me for the world today. Intimidated by police, forced to shelter in the Australian embassy and then rushed out of China. We'll bring you the latest on the ABC's Beijing correspondent Bill Bertels and the Financial Review's Michael Smith, who've just arrived back in Australia this morning. They've been forced to leave China as the political and economic standoff between Beijing and Canberra worsens. We'll have those stories and more coming up on The World Today. 5,990 head of sheep and lambs were penned at the Mushay market today. The quality wasn't as good as last week and the numbers were down on last week too by around about 1,600 head. John Testro, how did you see it? Good afternoon, Belinda. Yes, that reduced quality yarding saw values ease mainly $5 to $10 today. The market toppers were New Seasons lambs at $150, Best Trade lambs $145, and heavy lambs to 160. Best hoggets made 165. Weathers 160 and heavy ewes $158. But for some quotations in the lamb market, the best new seasons lambs they sold from 130 to $150 at near 6.30 cents a kilo. They were down by $15. The old seasons lambs, air freight 13 to 17 kilos, sold from 78 to 117 at near 600 cents, down by $5. Light trade, pretty firm at 110 to 124 at near 610. Best trade lambs, 135 to 145, again $6 and down by $5. The uh, heavy lambs, 145 to 160 for the absolute best. They were near 620 but down by 20 cents and very up uh, $20, I beg your pardon, and very much quality driven. The best hoggets today sold from 120 to 165, down five, uh, down by five to ten dollars at near 500 cents a kilo. And uh, best weathers 150 to 160 dollars and down by ten, very much quality driven again. In the U market, we saw light boners uh, under 18 kilos sell from 55 to 83 dollars. They dropped ten dollars at near 400 cents. The medium bonus, 19 to 23 kilos, sold from 87 to 120 at near 470 cents. The trade weights, 24 to 30 kilo, 120 to 150, down $5 at near 480 cents, with a very heavy uh, use, 154 to 158, and uh, they would have made around about 430 cents a kilo. Rams today, the best at 60 to $100 and down by $10. Store market stayed very strong on uh, Merino ewe lambs and weather lambs. We saw graziers pay 60 to 111 for the ewe lambs and weather lambs from 78 to 124. That completes the market report for today, Belinda. This has been John Testro for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service and the ABC. John, thank you for that. Off to Katanning tomorrow for a wrap of the sheep market there. And a few of your comments just before the news at one o'clock today, just talking about the seasonal conditions. Uh, this one on the text, as in the millennium drought of 2000-2003, it was September rains that saved the seasons. It's obvious that the seasons have shifted. It is autumn with dry conditions till July-August and the driest and hottest part of the year in February-March. Maybe we should revert to the old way of growing crops. That is, wait until it rains to plant in winter and harvest in the driest part of the summer. Planting in March, April and trying to harvest in October, November 
is not compatible with our current seasonal climate. And you also called into Madura Station. This comment after that, all that hay that passed the Madura Station front gate being sent to New South Wales last year when it obviously should have remained in WA. ABC WA Newstime, one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.